from KBOO in Portland, Oregon. This is Religion for Life, exploring the intersection of politics, science, religion, faith, psychology, spirituality, sex, the whole barrel. This is religionforlife.com. I'm John Schock. The enemy is not religion per se. It's rigid conventionality, a a way of thinking that's rule-based. My guest is John Van Hagen, a licensed psychologist with 30 years experience in a variety of clinical training and teaching positions. In his book, Rescuing Religion, How Faith Can Survive Its Encounter with Science, he explores the topic of how science can inform and impact one's journey of faith. He speaks with me about rescuing religion and why we should bother. He's with me via Skype from his home in San Francisco. Welcome, John, to Religion for Life. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So how did you come to write this book, Rescuing Religion, How Faith Can Survive Its Encounter with Science? I think a couple of things. One is uh, just being aware of the burst of new information over the last 20, 25 years regarding the scriptures, regarding the historicity of the scriptures, uh, work by many individuals and also a group such as the Jesus Seminar, to kind of push against what we have received about the scriptures. And I think on a more personal level, um, maybe for about 10, 12 years, kind of an ongoing dialogue with a friend of mine, close friend of mine, Tom Sheehan, uh, where we just chewed over these issues and talked about them and what does it mean to, our, to, to each of us? What, what, what's our takeaway from all of this new information. And gradually as we talked, we, th- we came up with ideas, uh, things to write about, things to present. He and I presented some things. And gradually uh, the idea of putting it all together in a book came to me. And um, that's what I did. Well, let's talk about those religious texts. You begin with those, particularly Jewish and Christian texts, and uh, you write about this shift in the way they've been interpreted. Uh, For centuries, this biblical library was considered uh, a history, uh, even of the cosmos, from Genesis to Revelation, and now modern methods are are showing that it's more in the realm of fiction and myth. Moses, uh, more of a fictional character, even Jesus, probably mostly legend. There may be an historical figure there, but uh, most of it... Uh, about most of the stories about him in that realm of legend or myth. So do these texts have authority any longer, and and what's their value? I I think they do have uh, some authority because they, if we go behind these stories, we see the struggles of uh, a people who courageously looked at their uh, situation and came up with an alternative. Uh, For me, the the biggest uh, historical event is what happened to the Jewish people in about 586 BCE when uh, their kingdom was basically destroyed. Uh, The king was removed. They had no more focus. Uh, The king was the focus of their lives. No more temple. Uh, They were devastated through war and famine that accompanies war. And uh, rather than just disappear from history, they... Uh, developed an identity that was as a people who were morally charged to live good lives. And I think that, to me, is a very powerful lesson. Uh, I certainly haven't gone through the crises that they went through, but I feel the same challenge to to live a good life. 
and and I I think to me that was really one of the more important uh, discoveries for me personally was that particular challenge, and I I, I continue to go back to that. Well, you write a chapter uh, about psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, who was a prisoner in the Nazi death yes. camps, and uh, and you make that to, that his own search for meaning uh, is related, in a sense, to that story that you're talking about uh, the uh, the exile in five eighty six. Yes, I believe he faced again a a crisis that uh, those of us who haven't gone through it can only imagine with difficulty, where he was facing death every day. And uh, still found meaning, and I think the basis for his meaning was his Jewish culture and his Jewish religion. He uh, he, he he found there some purpose, and I I think that's that's what the heart of the of the religious message is is uh, an example of how people of faith found meaning in these very difficult times. Now, you titled your book, Rescuing Religion, How Faith Can Survive an Encounter with Science. Uh, there are some, uh, an increasing number, uh, an o- a vociferous number, who will say that uh, religion shouldn't be rescued. Uh, the days of religion should end. Religion and science are incompatible, and uh, religion's part of our superstitious past, and we should honor and practice reason, not faith. Uh, should religion be rescued? You know, that's funny, because a friend of my son's who lives in Portland, um, when I, we were talking about it and I said the title was Rescuing Religion, his re- immediate response was, why bother? And I uh-huh. think that's at the heart of your question, too. Well, I, if I can just uh, quote uh, David um, Foster Wallace, um, who said, as we enter our early 30s, we have to put away childish things and confront stuff about spirituality and values. Uh, and I think he, he represents this important searching for spirituality and values that I think is still existent, even if people don't attend church or synagogue. Um, so I think rather than each of us starting our search from a tabula rasa, a, a blank slate, I, I think it's it's more efficient to look at what other peoples have done to try to find spirituality and values, all that stuff. And I, I, I think that's what um, is important for me. Um, another way of putting this perhaps from a psychological sense is uh, religion presents conventional values, uh, right and wrong, heaven and hell, and uh, that's uh, important uh, in our growth, but also important in our growth is to move beyond that. So I, I say let's rescue religion not as the ultimate, but as a launching pad from which we may uh, pursue our own uh, spiritual growth our own searching for meaning with the guidance and example of what other people who have faced far more difficulties than we have and uh, expended so much more energy than we ever will on this particular search. You write at one point your own story. I, I never became religious by believing something happened a long time ago. I became religious because something truly significant happened in my lifetime. Can you t- 
talk about that and how your individual religious experience connects with a larger religious myth. I don't have the exact um, percentages, but there are a number of uh, preteens and teens who have religious experiences. And I had one as a preteen. I was probably about 11 in a church uh, by myself and um, sort of hearing or feeling perhaps experiencing the presence of something beyond myself and uh, feeling uh, enveloped by that, feeling eventually uh, called by that uh, power, if you will. And uh, this became a guide for me, this sense of another world, another way of being in this world. So I left home at 14 to go into a Catholic seminary where I stayed uh, for 12 years. And I think that it, it, my belief, I should say, is that that was in some ways salvation for me. That was moving away from a home situation where I didn't feel connected and offered an alternative universe where I could find meaning and purpose. The message of the seminary was to study and to serve and I found that very powerful. It, it, it fit very well. There were some unfortunate things about seminary and about Catholicism with its emphasis on obedience. But uh, that didn't affect me as much. So, again, my experience uh, as a preteen and as a teenager and as a young man to want to serve others, I think, gave me a, a lot of uh, meaning in my life. I, identity is is not just who you are. But it's uh, what you do, uh, what you're for, a prescription uh, rather than simply a description. So I I think I found that prescriptive uh, message there uh, to to be able to uh, align myself with something larger than myself. This, This to me was extremely important. You know, I run into people on an individual basis uh, in in my own uh, practice of of ministry, and I'm sure you did too in your in your practice uh, of psychology. For those who've grown up with religion and it's been very negative and damaging, um, how, how do those folks work through that? For example, I just interviewed someone who uh, talked about how many people who grew up as religious fundamentalists or uh, evangelicals switch right over to atheism. Um, mm-hmm. And and I'm wondering, uh, is there a middle path? Is is that the way to go uh, to really kind of reject the whole past and start anew, or is there something redeemable for them within the tradition? That, that's a a good question, and I, I think that's faced and re, and resolved if it can be on an individual basis. I, I think some folks reject what is really a a straw man in terms of religion, uh, by taking it literally, uh, by taking the institution too, too intensely, by believing too much, if you will. Um, it's important that they do walk away from that because it's very limiting and very oppressive. Uh, what I would encourage people to do is, is to look beyond the institutions, beyond the writings, beyond the disciplines, to see what that's about, to see that it uh, serves a purpose and had served a purpose for people in the past. Uh, it's easier said than done. And I think uh, for some people, that movement into atheism, or as one person calls it, atheism, uh, 
that, that's or antheism, I guess is what he says. Um, th- that's a very important stage. But what do you do then? How do you how do you in in Wallace's terms uh, confront the stuff about spirituality and values? What's your launching pad? What's your community to support that? Uh, in in my book, I I emphasize community a lot because I think. Um, we mistakenly think that um, we do it all on our own. I, I think that uh, it's much better to see ourselves as embedded in some kind of community that both supports and challenges our our views and our practices. Well, you know, that leads me to this next question to talk a little bit more about what spirituality is. Uh, people... Um more and more people are, are resistant even to the word religion. Uh, for them, it smacks of all of these things we've talked about, rules and superstition, control, violence, dogma, and they may call themselves spiritual but not religious. What are they saying when they say that, and is that a good thing, and how might we uh, encourage that, or what might be uh, a depth of spirituality? You know, I haven't really studied that uh, particular group of the population that that calls themselves the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Uh, but th- there is one hint uh, that many of the people who do not uh, practice religion very well, very much, but still consider themselves spiritual, still have beliefs such as heaven and hell. Majority of them believe in heaven and hell. So I, I, it's not clear to me that those people who moved away from religion have still moved have moved away from a sort of a conventional morality. For me, heaven and hell are mm. indications of a conventional morality. Uh, so I, I think that group needs to be studied a little more, uh, dialogued with a little bit more, to find out what it is that they they really believe. Um, I, I th- think in. Uh, my own family, I've seen my son's uh, attempt to form their own small communities. Uh, they wouldn't necessarily call it that, but they do meet with like-minded people who share uh, dedication to a, a moral life, a way of raising their children, a way of participating in their a larger community and in politics and in their jobs uh, in a way that um, I think is admirable. So it may be that this individual thing still under further investigation might have a community dimension to it. You know, there are these uh, groups that are non-religious that uh, still try to find time and place to have ceremonies, to have community gatherings. So this, this is a movement that I don't pretend to be expertise, to have expertise about, but it's worth following and see what they're trying to uh, to, vet, to develop and, and also what traces of conventionality they still take with them. Let me just add a postscript. I don't think conventionality is bad. I think that it's very important for us in our psychological growth to have structure. Uh, it, it's also important to be able to move beyond it. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is John Van Hagen. He's the author of Rescuing Religion, How Faith Can Survive Its Encounter with Science. And the science has been huge. Now we we look at the universe every day. Uh, We're learning new things, Uh, 13.7 billion years old. Uh, The the whole cosmos of the Bible uh, really has now finally, I think, uh, in the uh, mindset of of regular folks, uh, been changed. And, And we see 
magnificent uh, accomplishments uh, with science. So how does uh, religion survive its encounter? Uh, I think that the, the first step is to embrace the science that tells us more about the scriptures, the archaeology about the uh, Jewish, the behind the stories of the Jewish scriptures, the uh, the work that has been going on for centuries now regarding the uh, the New Testament, the uh, Christian scriptures. I, I think that's the first uh, engagement that I would recommend religious people to to uh, enter into, because that really uh, challenges us, not that it gives us another conventional way of thinking, uh, what it does is introduce tremendous ambiguity. There are still tremendous divisions, and there always will be, about uh, what these stories are about. You mentioned Moses or Joshua. Uh, Did they really exist? Uh, You're going to have people pro and con on some of these issues. It's going to be up to us to, to... come down on what we really believe, what we really accept, both about the uh, the Jewish and Christian scriptures. So I think that's the first dialogue, the first encounter that that needs to happen. For me, the the second mo- more important one is the whole idea of evolution. To me, um, this raises all kinds of questions, not least of which, of course, is the myth of the Garden of Eden and about how original sin or something like that comes into the world. But it also suggests that we're fallible, we're going to continue to make mistakes as well as be successful in our own growth, both as a people, as a world, and also as individuals. So I think for me, taking seriously evolution is uh, is another sort of potential dialogue for us as as human beings as well as uh, as religious individuals then i think the the third area is what you're talking about and which i am not competent at all to talk about which is the the whole cosmos the whole new discovery that happened just in the last century of the extent of the universe the, and the it's it's a continuing expansion and it's continuing to reveal mysteries to us as, as sort of mind-boggling. And uh, that to me opens up another way of thinking about the the power behind the if – I, if I can use that term, the power behind the universe. What is it all about and um, where is it, if you will? How do we connect with it? Finding the story behind the story. What, uh, for example, let's say uh, the story of um, the book of Acts, for example. What, what, what is the story? What were the people thinking and doing and feeling and confronting as they wrote the story rather than the surface story itself? That getting under that is our point of connection. Yes, I, I think that the story on a literal basis uh, made sense for the people at that time. It gave them something to hold on to. It gave them security. Uh, for us, we don't need that kind of security, that kind of uh, definite, this is what really happened kind of thing. Uh, and, and you can get to that more ambiguous uh, reality by going behind Acts and seeing that the uh, Christian, what became the Christian church, uh, went through tremendous struggles. Uh, it, it's a wonder that it survived. 
there were one of the greatest conflicts and it still exists in Christianity is the sort of self-identification we're Jewish but we're not Jewish and and that kind of dilemma was something that caused many people to to take a position either on the Jewish side or on the non-Jewish side uh, for the first 150, 200 years of the Christian evolution. So I, I think to appreciate the struggle of trying to make sense of this message from this Jewish prophet and to try to find communities that were centered upon him uh, is a marvelous struggle and very inspiring struggle that I think is only revealed to us if we go beyond the smooth uh, message that is portrayed in Acts. So in other words, like, for example, the work of the Jesus Seminar in terms of finding uh, the story behind the story actually has a psychological or spiritual benefit uh, for us, even beyond simply the academic exercise. I think so. I I think it says that... uh, this is really about fellow or fellow uh, strugglers, fellow uh, meaning makers, and this is what they did. Uh, what are you going to do? I think we can't just copy what they did. I think that's a false kind of identity. Uh, real identity comes from our own engagement with uh, struggles, as they did, uh, and and psychologically. Uh, we all look for some kind of security that, that's built into us. And we have to be careful that we don't accept someone else's brand of, of security, someone else's message, and take that on without doing the hard work of our own individual growth. Evolution has had a huge impact on religion, whether people recognize it or not. Um, it certainly takes apart the whole traditional Christian dogma, the Christian early myth, I would would say, um, of the of original sin, and then um, you know the need for a savior and so forth. So I'm wondering, how does uh, maybe this is uh, beyond both of our pay grades, but how how does evolution uh, change the Christian myth, and and what is the Christian myth uh, in light of modern science? Well, I think that's a work in progress. I, I would say that psychologically the most important thing about evolution is that it moves us from being past-oriented to being future-oriented. Hmm. Uh, religion very much invests in the past. These things happen. They were saving events. We benefit from those events. And we focus on the past. We focus on tradition. I think evolution turns our head around to the other direction and says, where are we going as people? Where are we going as individuals? And the past is significant. Um, As a psychologist, uh, so many people that I worked with had to revisit that past and work through certain things. There's no no question about the, the past being important. But I think the main thing for people, whether it's in therapy or in a religious setting, is, is what do you do now? Where do you go forward? And, and to me, that's the most important thing about evolution. You write um, that those who live out their faith are happier and more healthy psychologically. I remember uh, Carl Jung saying that. I wonder uh, if that's at all changing. I mean, just to push back on that, many churches and individual Christians, for example, in the United States, declare that their opposition to same-gender marriage 
is based on faith. So are, are, are these people happy? And uh, even if they are happier, they aren't making the rest of us so happy. <laughs> That's certainly true. Um, <clears throat> the research on the, the happiness or, or the well-being of church people uh, is, in general, widely accepted. However, there are um, more fine-tuning, more experiments that try to fine-tune exactly what about religion helps. And uh, the individual who sits in the back of the church and doesn't participate doesn't get much happiness or well-being from attendance. It's the people who really engage in the community who who benefit, uh, at least that's some of the findings now. And again, this is a work in progress as social scientists try to uh, look at that. Um, the, the other thing you're, you're bringing out, I think, is that uh, people can be happy and be wrong. Uh, they, can, they can do some terrible things in terms of their prejudice and biases that uh, are really harmful and, and yet be self-satisfied by it. That's the, the mystery of human beings, that we're able to compartmentalize and find happiness in, I don't know, uh, football or something else drugs, what, whatever. Uh, we have that capacity to do that. I, I'm not sure I'm answering your, your question, uh, but uh, it, it's, it seems to me that um, religious people do benefit society at some macro level. Uh, they, they give more to uh, causes, they participate more in causes, and, and yet there may be a downside to it. it th- that's just the way humans are, I think. There's both helpful and harmful aspects. Yeah, of course, uh, Yeah, my background to that question is really how I started the thing. As, as I keep running into uh, individuals, and, and I find them making a case, uh, people who are saying that religion is actually makes people worse behaved. Um, poorer behaved than better behaved. It's it's. Uh, we think of just uh, uh, Islamic terrorism, for example, sure. or, or or all of these things that somehow a religion has reached its end of being able to be a good for the society, and the, and there mm-hmm. needs to be something else. Yeah, I, I think religion as something rigid and conventional uh, is limiting, and therefore uh, blocks one's evolutionary growth, whether that's psychological or spiritual, I think that that's true. Uh, I, I think there are religious people, perhaps yourself included, and others that, that are, uh, work uh, as ministers and uh, priests who help people get beyond that. I think the enemy is not religion per se, it's rigid conventionality, a, a way of thinking that's rule-based. I, I think that's the problem. Yeah, and there's a sense in which I get from your book, and, and, and I as well personally, that that altruism, that sense of transcending one's uh, um, narrow vision into a broader vision is really the uh, perhaps the goal of the myth of religion or spirituality. I think so. I think to, to, to go beyond yourself without being self-righteous mm-hmm. uh, is, is terribly important, and, and it's, it's, quite an, it's an ongoing challenge. It, it's something that – and I think this is where community comes in, is if you're really engaged in a community that's on a similar search, you, you, you're humbled by the work of other people uh, and, and by their journeys. 
and that that, that keeps you focused and uh, keeps you more truly altruistic rather than self-important. John Van Hagen, author of Rescuing Religion, How Faith Can Survive Its Encounter with Science, my guest on Religion for Life. I just have about a minute left. Uh, What do you hope people will gain from your book? I would hope that they can see there's some value in religion because it tells the stories of people like us who faced tremendous conflicts or maybe not so tremendous conflicts, but found meaning, found what uh, William James called the, the moral alternative to war. John Van Hagen, thank you for this important book, Rescuing Religion, How Faith Can Survive Its Encounter with Science, and for being with me today on Religion for Life. Uh, Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Religion for Life is a weekly half-hour show available to radio stations and via podcast. Find podcasts of all 180 programs at religionforlife.com. Tell your friends about Religion for Life. From KBOO Portland, I'm John Schuck. Be well. Be well.